We're continuing this morning uh, what we've been doing this summer, looking at overviews of, uh, of entire biblical books. And so last week, if you remember, we spent the morning in the book of Exodus. And what I want to do now is uh, fill in the gap between Exodus and the book where we will be this morning, the book of Joshua. So if you remember, Exodus uh, left off with God's presence filling the newly constructed tabernacle. God had brought his people out of Egypt. He had uh, set them free from slavery, and he brought them to himself. He set them free to be with him. And so if you continue through the Bible, uh, going past Exodus, Leviticus comes next, and that contains many laws and commands. These were the things that needed to be done under the Old Covenant in order that a holy God might dwell with his, uh, dwell in the midst of a sinful fallen people. So then after Exodus comes the book of Numbers, that begins with Moses taking a census of the nation. That's why it's called Numbers. Uh, the people then depart from Mount Sinai where they'd been since Exodus chapter 19, and they travel directly to the edge of the promised land. This is the land that God promised to Abraham that he would give to his people. And that promise was given some 600 years prior to Moses. So it, it had been a while. That promise had been yet to be fulfilled for quite a while. And so they arrive at the end of, edge of the promised land. They sent spies into the land to scope it out. And those spies come back, and 10 of the 12 spies were fearful of the people who already dwelled there. And those 10 spies convinced the rest of the nation that they would not find victory if they entered the land. They spread the fear that they themselves felt to the rest of the nation. And so as a result of the people's lack of faith in God, they were commanded to wander the desert for 40 years until they passed away and the next generation came up behind them. And then the book of Deuteronomy begins with that second generation preparing to enter the promised land. Uh, Moses recounts their history and their covenant with God. Uh, much of the law is restated in Deuteronomy. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses himself dies. And so when the book of Joshua opens, what we have is this second generation of freed Israelites preparing to enter the promised land while following Joshua, who is now, uh, who used to be second in command under Moses, but is now stepping into the leadership position. So what the book of Joshua records is what took place as the people entered the promised land sought to uh, defeat the inhabitants of the promised land and then divide up the land among the 12 tribes. That's, that's the book of Joshua in a nutshell. And so what I'm going to do this morning is give you the highlights of the events that are recorded. And I'll actually do that pretty quickly because what I want to focus on is, is the way in which the book of Joshua actually foreshadows something that would come later. And what it foreshadows is 
your story and my story as it pertains to being a follower of Jesus. And when we get there, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. But, but before we get there, let's look at what took place, the events that transpired as the people entered into the promised land. So I would encourage you to open to the book of Joshua. Uh, in the Pew Bibles, it is page 178. The book begins with a transition of leadership. As I said, Moses has died, and Joshua prepared to take on that role. And in Joshua chapter 1, God speaks to Joshua. And this is what God said to him. We'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. You can follow with me. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is, that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So God affirms that his promises to Moses were continuing. Those promises did not die along with Moses. What God has accomplished through Moses, he will continue to accomplish through Joshua. Joshua is told he, he ought to be careful to follow God's commands as they were given through Moses. And then by the end of chapter 1, if we continued on, Joshua has assumed command and the people have pledged to follow him just like they did Moses. And then in chapters 2 through 5, the people finally step foot in the promised land. So before they go in, spies are once again sent into the land. Those spies return with news that the inhabitants of the land are living in fear. They've heard, they've heard messages, they've heard news about God working through his people, and, and they're fearful. And so at that point, the only thing standing between the people and the promised land was a flooding Jordan River, which might have seemed like an issue, but that's not a problem for our powerful God. And so what God did is he miraculously stopped the waters of the Jordan River upstream so that the people could cross on dry land. 
He made the way for them to enter. And once everyone was safely across and into the land, the waters resumed flowing as they once did. Now, upon entering the promised land, as soon as, as soon as the people arrive on the land there, we are immediately told that this second generation of Israelites had not been circumcised. Now, their parents all had been, the first generation, but, but maybe it was the rebellion of that first generation. I don't, we don't know what it was, but for whatever reason, the second generation, the, the boys, the men, were not circumcised. And so before going any farther, God commands all the men to be circumcised. They did that once they had all healed. The people celebrated the Passover together and ate the produce of the land, of the promised land. And when they did that, the manna that had been falling for the last 40 years stopped. And it signified that they had arrived. The people had arrived at their destination. They'd made it, right? The people were now in the promised land, the land that had been promised for hundreds of years. They're there. They're enjoying the benefits of it. So that's the end, right? End of the story. Well, not quite. <laughs> not quite because the land was filled. It wasn't just filled with food and good things like that. The land was filled with inhabitants, it was filled with people who were opposed to God and his ways. And so if, if God's people, if the Israelites were going to dwell in the land and find any kind of rest and freedom, those inhabitants needed to be removed. And so the end of chapter 5 through the end of chapter 12 recounts the, the conquering of the promised land. Uh, chapter 6 is the, the famous story of the Battle of Jericho. Let me just read a few of those verses, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. How many of us learned that story when we were little kids, right? It's kind of a fun one to, to learn. But there were other battles that took place in the promised land as well. That's, that's the most famous one. Um, there was actually two battles near a town called Ai. Uh, it, this is in chapters 7 and 8. The first time that the Israelites uh, went up to attack Ai, they were soundly defeated. And this is coming right on the heels of the Battle of Jericho. Now, after Joshua humbly fell on the ground before God to try and figure out why they were defeated, uh, he found out that someone in the camp had not completely obeyed God's commands at the previous Battle of Jericho. Someone had taken for themselves 
spoil from the battle, which was supposed to be completely devoted to God. That's what God had commanded them to do. Now, after identifying the guilty party and stoning him and his family, the people went up again to Ai, and this time they were victorious. Now, there's some uncomfortable things in Joshua regarding killing of enemies, uh, disobedient people, and I'll address that a little bit later on. Right now, I'm just giving you the facts, giving the details. So we're just going through that, and we'll come back to that a little bit. Um, There's many further battles that took place. By the end of chapter 12, uh, what chapter 12 ends with is a list of all the kings that were defeated by Joshua. And we're given a list of 31 kings. After that, then, chapters 13 through 22 cover the dividing of the land among the 12 tribes. These are the chapters which give the details of the boundary lines for each tribe's inheritance. Um, It's one of those portions of the Bible that no one writes devotional books from, you know. Um, The boundary lines that, that are recorded are recorded in pretty good detail. But what we see is that God specifically gave a real inheritance to his people. I mean, those are real boundary lines. It's a real inheritance that God gave. His promise is being fulfilled in the midst of those seemingly mundane details, right? They they may not mean much to us living outside of that land a long time afterwards, but it's God's promise being fulfilled in those words. And then the book of Joshua ends much like it started, with a transition of leadership. Joshua is nearing the end of his life, and he he gives a charge to the leaders of Israel and to the entire nation. And then at the end of chapter 24, Joshua dies. So we see in chapter 24, verse 29, it says, After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. So that's the basic story of the book of Joshua. It's a history book that recounts what took place as that second generation entered the promised land and took possession of the promised land. But the book of Joshua is so much more than just a history book. It is a history book, but it's more than that. As I said earlier, the book foreshadows something which would come later. Now, did did anyone have the experience I did back in high school when it came to reading any of Shakespeare's plays where I would sit in class, we would read a portion of a play, and then the teacher would ask us, okay, now what's that about? What's going on? And I I, I don't know. <laughs> like I, I'm not real sure. I don't know if it's the, the, the old English, you know, the, the older style English that was used, or if it was just the, the nature of poetry itself. But, and as a, I think that was, if I'm remembering right, that was either freshman or sophomore year. I, I just... I feel like I just wasn't, wasn't able to grasp the symbolism that Shakespeare is famous for. And so many times be like, you got to tell me what it means. I don't know. <laughs> well, lucky for us, the, the Holy Spirit makes it easier than Shakespeare to catch the symbolism in the book of Joshua. 
Now, the name Joshua is a Hebrew name, which means the Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. There's a Greek equivalent to that Hebrew name, which also means the Lord is salvation. And the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua is the name Jesus. Any guesses as to who Joshua might be foreshadowing? It's easier than Shakespeare, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, right? Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus, the Messiah. As, as people who read the book of Joshua after the first coming of Jesus, we ought to see Jesus in Joshua. So, so let's do that. Let's do that. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 1, we find the people uh, on the outside of the promised land looking in. God had promised rest and provision and protection, but it hadn't yet been received. What the people needed was someone who would lead them in to the promised land, someone who would go before them, who, who would fight their battles. And who, does, who did God provide for the people? He provided Joshua. And remember, this is, this is a group of, of uh, children of former slaves who don't have their own land. They, they don't have a well-established military at this point. It's not exactly a group of army rangers going into the promised land here. All right, they're going up against cities and nations that, that are more powerful more numerous, and fighting on their own home turf. So uh, I'm not a military strategist, but that, that's three strikes, I think, when it, when it comes to that kind of thing. So God's people should have been in for a pretty rough go of things. But God provided Joshua, and Joshua went in before them, and through the power of God, Joshua leads them to victory after victory. He is their warrior who conquers their enemies. Joshua is also the person who speaks God's words to his people. Now, that previously was Moses. Moses used to be that link between God and the people. Moses always went before God, um, spoke with God face to face. But after Moses' death, Joshua took that role. Joshua gave the people God's directions regarding marching around the city of Jericho. Joshua told the people the commands of God and encouraged them to be obedient to them. I mean, Joshua would tell the people whether God said they could keep the spoil from that uh, battle or not. Um, Joshua told the people when God said, okay, now it's time to divide up the land. Joshua spoke the words of God to the people. And, and you can even take it a step farther and, and say Joshua did what God commanded him to do. Now, now, there were times when Joshua didn't seek God's direction and in those times failed. But when God spoke, Joshua obeyed. He, he carried out the will of God. And all of that is, is in a lesser sense in the person of Joshua but doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus? When we read about what Jesus did in his life, I mean, isn't Jesus the one who goes before us to fight our enemies, the enemies of Satan and sin and death? 
I mean, Jesus himself says in uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 18, that, that he has seen Satan fall like lightning and that he has the authority, Jesus has the authority to overcome all the power of the enemy. Isn't Jesus the one who speaks the words of God? John 12, 49, Jesus says, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And then isn't, isn't Jesus the one who does exactly what his heavenly Father has for him to do? Again, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So when we, when we look at the story of Joshua and, and see an imperfect but yet strong and godly leader going out before the people, we should see a glimpse of Jesus. We are meant to see that. Jesus is the one that we need in the battles that we face. And, and in case we are tempted to picture Jesus fighting for us against human enemies, we have to remember Paul's words from Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not against human enemies. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of evil. Our, our enemy is Satan. Our enemy is our own fallen, sinful nature. Jesus goes before us and wins the victory in those realms. He's the one that fights for us. Uh, when we close the service this morning, we're, we're going to sing um, a new song that we've done a couple times lately, uh, The Lion and the Lamb. Jesus is the lion who breaks chains and roars with power and fights our battles, as, as the, the lyrics of that song say. And he does so through his dying on the cross for the sins of the world. It's his death and resurrection from the dead which won that victory. That's how he fights the battle. So as much of a uh, warrior as Joshua was, Jesus is the ultimate warrior who wins the ultimate victory over Satan and sin and death. If you're looking for that kind of victory in your life, Jesus is where you find it. He has won that victory. And so we are, we are meant to see that in the book of Joshua, in the person of Joshua. But there's also one more connection that, that we're supposed to make. There's some more symbolism to recognize. The Israelites who were led into the promised land they, they uh, foreshadow the followers of Jesus. So just as Joshua led people into battle and brought about victory, so does Jesus lead us. So think about when the people first entered the promised land, right? They came through the water of the Jordan River. Now, now where they walked was dry because God had stopped the river, but but in a sense, they were still going through the water, right? They were going through the Jordan River. The whole thing is, is symbolic of, of birth, of a child being born. 
coming out through the water. Similar to that, followers of Jesus are born again. As Jesus says in John chapter 3, we are born of water and spirit. We're born again. There's meant to be that picture of a, of a birth. And then additionally, when the people of Israel crossed and were in the promised land just over the Jordan River, uh, they were circumcised immediately. And Paul talks in Romans chapter 2 about believers in Jesus being circumcised in the heart. In Colossians, he calls it a circumcision done by Jesus, which connects with Joshua himself being the one who circumcised the men in Joshua chapter 5. So when we become followers of Jesus, when we become Christians, we, we are born again. And like the entrance of the Israelites into the promised land, we are brought into the promised land of salvation. It's a place of provision and rest and security. But what I really want to draw our attention to this morning is the fact that, that once in the promised land, there were still numerous enemies that the Israelites needed to drive out. And, and though Joshua is repeatedly said to be the one through whom victory came, we know that the people participated in those battles. Joshua led them out. Joshua brought the victory, but the people participated in that. They fought as well. And so just like the story of Joshua didn't end in Joshua chapter 5 with, with the people like just over the border into the promised land, our story doesn't end there either when we cross over the border into salvation. There are still enemies that need to be driven out. Have you ever wondered why you still struggle with sin even though you're a child of God and you've been given salvation in Jesus and you've been born again? Have you ever wondered why that struggle remains? I've wondered that about myself. I think I can safely assume we've all wondered that. It's because there are still enemies in the land. We've entered the promised land, and those enemies stand no chance against Jesus, but they must be driven out. Now, there, there's, some, there's some theological terms that, that seek to capture the breadth and depth of, of all that's taking place in salvation. One of those terms is regeneration. Okay, re regeneration speaks of being made new in Jesus. We are a new creation in Jesus, as Paul says. Being born again is another way to say it. That, that's, that's talking about regeneration, this new birth. Another word, another term is sanctification. Sanctification speaks of the ongoing process of transformation in our lives. It's the process of being set apart from sinful living. It's the process of decreasing in yielding the passions of the flesh, which, which Tim read for us from Galatians, and increasing in yielding the fruit of the Spirit. That's sanctification. So, 
So if the people crossing the Jordan River and being circumcised is like regeneration, then their conquering the promised land, driving out their enemies, is like sanctification. Now, we can't, we can't become prideful. We can't, we can't try to be self-sufficient and think that it's all up to us to drive out the enemy of sin in our lives. But we also cannot become lazy or defeated and think that we do not have any role to play in this enemy being driven out. For the Israelites, Joshua went before the people and Joshua secured the victory, but the people participated through their obedience. Likewise, when it comes to our sanctification, Jesus goes before us and Jesus secures the victory, but we participate through our obedience. So the question is, are, are, are you and I just barely in the promised land of salvation, but, but not really experiencing full victory and rest? Are there enemies all around us that haven't been driven out due to disobedience? You know, when the Israelites ignored God's commands, they went up to attack Ai, for example, and they were soundly defeated. When they repented of their sins, when they obeyed God's commands, they went up to attack Ai, and we are told that there was no one left who escaped or survived. I mean, what's the difference? Same people going up, same Joshua leading them, but what's the difference? It was their obedience to what God called them to. Now, I'll say again, our obedience does not secure the victory. Jesus does that. But through obedience, we participate in the complete victory over our enemies. Now, one of the more difficult things about the book of Joshua is that God's people are seen more than once uh, devoting everything to destruction. And it means not leaving a single enemy alive in whatever city. I think a main reason that God called the people to do that was to give us a picture of what the promised land of salvation is meant to be like. There is meant to be not a trace of sinful nature within us. We ought not be content with any hint of sin dwelling within us. It'd be like being fine with our enemy just living right next door to us. We ought to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, in our battle against the enemy. And taking up the sword of the Spirit equates with obeying the words that God has given to us. That's how we wield the sword of the Spirit, it's through obedience. Now, I... That could be difficult, right? I'm not trying to pretend like it's just this easy thing to always obey every single time. If it was that easy, we would be doing it without fail. <laughs> but sometimes the issue is, is maybe not a struggle to obey, but more our deception in thinking that our obedience doesn't matter or, or just isn't important because God's grace is sufficient, right? I mean, he, he, he's done the work, he's won the victory, so... You know, why does it even matter? Well, his grace is sufficient. I mean, let me be clear. But our obedience to God is, is, 
is the difference between just existing in the promised land or thriving in the promised land. Those are, those are two different existences, two different realities, two different ways of living. God's desire for you and me is not that we just exist in the promised land. It's not just crossing over the Jordan River and staying in that little patch of land right there. His, his desire for us is that we thrive in the promised land of salvation. So I want to, I want to end this morning by reading you um, a dying man's words. I want to read to you what Joshua spoke to the people in Joshua chapter 23, just before he died. These are some of his parting words regarding regarding the situation that the nation of Israel faced at that time. But as I read these words, listen to them also through the lens which we've been talking about this morning. So so chapter 23, um, I'll start reading in verse 1. Joshua 23, 1. It says, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So Jesus is the one who leads us into the promised land of salvation. There, there is no entrance without Jesus. He's the one who goes before us to battle. Jesus is the one who provides victory over our sinful nature that enemy that we have. But we won't participate in that full victory if we're not obedient to him. We'll instead be relegated to a small corner of salvation where we're not really living in true freedom. And it's not God's will for us. It wasn't his will for his people that he brought into the promised land. 
that physical land in Israel. It's not his will for us that he leads into the promised land of salvation. God's will is that we have life to the full, life abundantly in Jesus. And so in the power that God provides, let's walk behind him in obedience and watch as he drives out our sinful nature from within us and leads us to victory. That, that, that's his desire for us, and, and that's what we desire, too, if we're honest, right? We don't want to just live in this little corner of salvation. We want to have life to the full, as God has promised to us, and he'll give it to us as we walk obediently with him. What a, what a, great, what a great promise. What a great leader that we have, Jesus, who goes before us, and what a great promise of complete victory that he gives to us as well. So let's stand together, and as we, as we come before God in prayer, let's commit ourselves to him in that way of obedience, walking as he calls us to, that we might experience more and more of that victory over our enemies. So let's pray together. Jesus, first, we are, we are so thankful that that as Joshua led the people, you lead us. And it's not just a physical land that you give us, but, but the promise of salvation. And we're so thankful for that. We would never receive that if it were not for you. It is your death on the cross and your resurrection that provides that for us. And we recognize that this morning. It's why we worship you. It's why we put our hope in you, put our faith in you. God, Joshua himself was just a glimpse of, of Jesus, the Son of God, bringing victory. We thank you that we get to be led by him. God, would you help us as we are in this promised land of salvation to walk obediently as you call us to Help us to recognize the, the freedom that comes with that, the, the, the rest that comes with that. And God, we need the strength to do it. We know that in our own power, our own determination, we're, we're going to fail in that. We all know that we have failed in that when it comes down to that. But would you give us your strength, God, and your wisdom? Would you lead us and guide us? Would you help us to encourage one another? Would you... Would you remind us of, of, of the victory that you have for us? God, we want, to be, we want to be obedient. Would you help us to do that? And God, in those times that we're not, we're thankful that there's forgiveness. And we can come before you, be repentant, and find cleansing. And God, then in the midst of that, renew the call to walk behind you, to walk in step with your spirit within us. God, would you empower us to do that this morning as we close singing worship to you. God, may they not just be words that we sing, but may they be the attitude of our hearts. And God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.